listening to Life Church Podcast with Pastor David Sinclair. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and sent, set me as a target for his arrows. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughing stock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So is my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. My life's a wreck, and it's all my fault. Have you ever said that to yourself? Thought that to yourself? You know, in order for us to get really in touch with where this passage is coming from and its context, I want you to think about a time in your life where your sin caused you some pretty significant circumstances, some pretty significant suffering, perhaps. Um, when I was a freshman in high school, um, I was taking a computer class from my basketball coach. At small school, you, they have to do double roles. And I love basketball. Basketball was a huge deal to me. I, I, we had just had tryouts, and so I was anxiously awaiting the news of which team I had made. And um, one day in, in computer class, I was sitting next to a friend of mine, and he was goofing off the entire time. I was trying to get my assignment done. Most of you know this about me. I wasn't very good at computer class, but I did try hard. And uh, towards the end of the class, the, the teacher said, look, um, I'm going to take this assignment as a grade, so turn it in, and you're going to get graded on this. And I quickly finished up my assignment, and then my friend turned to me and said, hey, I, I didn't do anything. Do you mind if I just print yours off? 
and I knew it was wrong. I knew it was dumb to do it, but I said, sure, because I didn't want to be not cool. And so uh, he printed mine off, and, and I didn't think anything happened to it. I thought we kind of got away with it, right? Um, but then I was having this meeting with my coach for basketball, and we talked about basketball a little bit, and that was mostly good news. said, you know, I'm really liking what I'm seeing there. And then he slapped down two papers on the desk in front of me, and one was mine, and one was my friend's. And ironically, they both had 22 points off, exactly the same mistakes. He goes, do you know anything about this? I said, well, uh, and I kind of stuttered, and I said, well, we work together. I lied. He said, you're going to get a zero on this. And that zero actually took my whole GPA down for high school because he knew right away we had cheated. I lied about it, and we didn't get away with it. Plus, it made my whole freshman year super awkward with my coach because now I'd gotten off on the wrong foot. As much as I was trying, it didn't go very well. Maybe you've had something like that too. You know, uh, maybe you betrayed a friend or a loved one and then the trust in your relationship was destroyed and so now the, the relationship's just not the same. Uh, maybe parents, you know, this happens sometimes. Maybe your anger got the best of you and it boiled over onto your kids and now there seems to be a rift there. Maybe you gossiped about somebody and it just blew up in your face. Maybe you're like me, you cheated on something at, at school or at work and you got busted and now you got to pay the price. You know, some of the worst suffering in life is when we suffer for the consequences of our own sin. Isn't it true? I mean, it just feels awful. It's like, this is dumb. I'm suffering because of what I did. I didn't have to be in this spot, but I am because of what I did. We know we brought it on ourselves. We know it could have been avoided. And sin does indeed have consequences, doesn't it? Just because God forgives our sin, it doesn't mean it removes all the consequences. That's one of the reasons why God hates sin is because it destroys us. It destroys the fabric of our communities. It literally wreaks havoc on everything good in our lives. And our passage from Lamentations today is a poem. Really, the whole book of Lamentations is a set of poems, five poems, lamenting the destruction of Israel because of their sin. It's like a funeral dirge for an entire nation. And the majority of the book is a real downer, if you read it. But our passage today is like this tiny little passage, this glimmering, uh, shining passage in the midst of this dark, dark book. It's this section about hope in the midst of destructive consequences for Israel's sin. And here's the big idea that we have to get today. This passage is trying to teach us what we must remember when we sin. What we must remember when we sin and that's super important, right? Because all of us sin, do we not? Um, we try not to. We're working hard. We're asking the Holy Spirit, would you sanctify me? Would you make me more like Jesus? Would you lead me away from vice and towards virtue? But we sin. So this is a really important thing that we would be people that would know what to do when we sin. You know, one of the questions on that first survey, this first spiritual health survey we gave two weeks ago was, when, you sin, when I sin, my first instinct is to run to God. And then you could answer strongly agree to strongly disagree. That's a really important question because that says where you're at in your discipleship, right? If, if your first instinct when you sin is to run away from God, you haven't learned to apply what we find in our passage today. So this passage is remarkably important, and there are four big things 
I want us to see in this passage that the author of Lamentations calls to mind and that we need to call to mind when we sin too. But first, before we get into those four things, let's have a look at the background here. I actually had Jack read um, the section before the passage that the lectionary has today because the lectionary just has the, the really positive section, but you don't, I mean, most of us have that on our fridges or in our Bibles, and it's awesome, it's great, but if you don't know where that comes from, it, it kind of takes it out of context. So in verses 1 through 19, you know, the author's just lamenting the consequences of God's perfect justice for Israel's sin. God has allowed, if you look at it, destruction to come upon them for their wickedness, and it isn't pretty. And he talks about wormwood, and he's made my flesh and my skin waste away. Um, I like how he says, uh, he drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I don't know what that feels like, but I've had kidney problems. It doesn't feel good. So arrows in the kidneys, not a good thing. This is a guy who's really suffering. The superpower of Babylon has sacked Jerusalem. This is about 587 B.C. Destroyed the temple and carried off the people into exile. So the people that were left are starving to death, and everybody else gets hauled off into exile, into slavery. It's horrific. And the worst part of all is Israel's left to, to understand it's all our fault. We could have totally avoided this. That God had warned them dozens of times with the prophets, and they paid no heed. And perhaps the worst part of their despair is that they knew what the protection of Yahweh felt like. God had delivered them from powerful enemies many times before, but now it was like God just pulled back. It was like he didn't care anymore. It was like he gave up on them. So they're like, I guess we're done. And thus the author is lamenting in despair. It seems that all is lost at this point. It seems that he and the nation are at the point of no return. They've blown it completely. And God had abandoned them. It seemed like, all right, now all we're left with is the consequences for our own sin. All we're left with is God's justice. And maybe you felt like that before. Maybe you're feeling like that this morning. That you've totally blown it. That you've gone back to your sin time and time and time again. Even though you knew that it was wrong. Even though you knew God was calling you away from that. And now all you're left with is the consequences. All you're left with is the justice of God. You're suffering and you know it's all your fault. Well, you're certainly not alone. I think many of us have been there, and some of us might be there this morning. Israel certainly felt that way, and the author of Lamentations is totally there. But then we come to verse 21. You know, after, you know, it says in verse 19, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall, all this bitterness he's talking about. My soul continually remembers it and is bound down within me. And then in verse 21, there's this sudden transition. There's a big, giant but. A big, giant but. And uh, I knew I could get a few chuckles out of my middle schoolers with that, but the big buts in Scripture are very, very important. You don't want to miss the big buts in Scripture, especially in the poetry of the Bible like we see here in Lamentations. But what's the author saying with this big but here? Well, he's saying something really important. He recalls something to mind. Look at verse 21. He says, but... This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. And I appreciated how Jack read that. It was just, just this sudden turn, this sudden big twist. And the thing he calls to mind is something really, really good. It's something that brings him hope in the midst of God's justice and his own despair. And what is that? What's that thing that brings him hope? Well, it's the consistency of God's character. And he doesn't say it here, but I'm guessing 
as he's thinking through, man, we are suffering and this is God's justice. It's right for him to do this, but this really sucks. I'm guessing he's thinking God is so consistent in his justice. He's just perfectly consistent. And it's actually the consistency of God's justice that jogs his memory to say, wait a minute. If God is consistent in his justice, won't he also be consistent in his mercy and love? Because he's perfectly consistent in both things. God is consistent. He's unwavering. He does not change. You know, a couple weeks ago, Nathan preached on the idea of how to change God's mind. We actually see this a few places in Scripture where God appears to change his mind about his people. Um, And it's true. That can happen. But one thing you can never change about God is his character. He's 100% consistent. He's perfect in all his attributes. And I want you to think of his justice and his mercy as just opposite sides of the same coin. So God is just because he's good, but he's also merciful because he's good. So those two things are not opposed to one another. They're just opposite sides of the same coin. They're both part of his goodness. He's perfect in both at the same time. And the author of Lamentations is recalling that to mind. Okay, he's, he's being perfect in his justice towards us. Yes, we deserve that but he'll also then be perfect in his mercy and his love. So let's look at these four big things. The author remembers when he's in the midst of his sin and his suffering and the things that we need to remember specifically when it comes to our sin. And the first big thing is this. Remember when you've sinned that you have hope because verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning Great is your faithfulness. And oh man, is this not good news for us? Like I said, we often take this passage out of context. This is a really cheery passage. We take it out of the context of Israel being in exile because of their sin. This is good news in the midst of our sin. That God is like that. That he's unwavering. That he's steadfast in his love and his mercy. You know, we as humans... We're anything but steadfast and consistent, right? God's the opposite. He's perfectly steadfast. He's perfectly consistent in his justice and in his love and his mercy. He's going to be faithful in his justice. He's going to be faithful in his love and mercy. And the scriptures remind us of this over and over again. Look at Psalm 103. Love this psalm. I'm going to read a a larger portion of it. It's just so good. It's so in line with what the author of Lamentations is saying. It says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As high as the heavens are above the earth, that's how much his steadfast love is for you. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. You parents out there, you know what this feels like. Your kids mess up, don't they? You have compassion on them. That's how God feels towards you. It says, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. Psalm 103. But listen to Exodus 34. I find this interesting. You know, if you look at how 
a person describes themselves, that's often really helpful. Do you know God describes himself in these terms as a God of love and faithfulness, of mercy? This is the spot where God's giving uh, Moses the Ten Commandments the second time, because you remember he broke the first two tablets. And so he's up on Mount Sinai again, and it says this, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So it's God's calling card, right? It's how he describes himself, that he's a God of steadfast love and mercy, but he's also a God of perfect justice. Those two things working in perfection together at the same time. So being steadfast in love and mercy is not just something that God chooses to do every now and then. It is part of who he is, so he's utterly consistent in it. He never fails at it. And that's really important for you and I to remember when we sin, right? That this is part of God's character. We can count on it. It's not, well, will he be merciful and loving? Will he be steadfast in that? It is, he is, so I can have confidence in running to him. So when you sin, you run to God, not away from him. He invites you. He longs to show you compassion, to forgive you and restore you. And don't you just love how this text says that his mercies are new every morning? Every single morning, meaning he has an endless supply of mercy for you. So like God in himself is a factory of mercy. He's producing it all the time for you. And that's a good thing because what do we do? We sin all the time, right? So our sin, we're sin factories and God's a factory of mercy, which is really great. So every single morning is an opportunity to enjoy and to receive his mercies brand new every day. I love how Eugene Peterson puts this in the message. He highlights this. He says, God's loyal love couldn't have run out. His merciful love couldn't have dried up. They're created new every morning. And of course, nobody put it more memorably when writing about this passage here in Lamentations than Thomas Obadiah Chisholm. In the early 1900s, in his famous hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, this is one of the top ten hymns of all times, you understand, and it's written about this passage in Lamentations. Isn't that interesting? It's always been one of my favorites. I never knew where it came from. It came from this passage. It's almost word for word. It says, Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. That's what you need to remember when you sin, that in the morning, there's new mercies for you. You run to God, not away from him. He longs to show you compassion and forgive you. That's the first thing we need to remember when we sin, God is a God of steadfast love and mercy towards you. But secondly, remember you have hope because the Lord is your portion. Verse 24, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. So why is the author of Lamentations comforted by the fact that the Lord is his portion? Well, this verse is referring to when the people of Israel came into the promised land 
And after the conquest of Canaan, God gave a portion of land to each of the tribes. And that portion of land was to be their sustenance. It was the way they were going to make a living for themselves and survive. And he gave land to everyone except for Aaron and his sons, the priests. And he says in Numbers 18.20, he said, I'm not giving you land because I am your portion and your inheritance among the children of Israel. So Aaron and his sons were dependent on Yahweh for their livelihood, dependent on the laws that God had set out in the Torah. So the author of Lamentations is understandably really grieved by the loss of the land. The land was a really big thing in Israel because it was their provision. It was their sustenance. You can imagine being in Ukraine right now, right? Your neighbor comes in, invades you, forces you out from your job, from your home, from your land, the place where you provide for your family. And what do you have? What are, you, what are you going to be dependent on to make your living? That's what's going on with Israel here, right? So the author's saying, like, who's going to take care of us? Who's going to provide for us? We have no land anymore. And then he remembers this. Oh, God was the portion for Aaron and his sons. But not only that, remember, God provided for the children of Israel in the wilderness with manna and quail every day, food. God can take care of you. And that's what this passage is saying. Even though you're suffering the consequences of your sin, all is not lost. God can take care of you. God can take care of you. See, when we sin, we suffer, right? Because suffering is just the stripping away of all the things that are meaningful and good in our lives. So that produces suffering. But even in the midst of that suffering, God can take care of you. God can restore that which is broken. He can restore that which is lost. He can give back to you and can provide for you. He's your portion. So as long as you have him, you have everything you need. And that's what the author of Lamentations is recalling right now. He's saying, okay, if I have God, even though we're in exile, even though this really stinks, I have everything I need. God is my portion. He will provide. He's enough. As the hymn so aptly puts it, all I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. You know, one of our great-grandmothers, Corrie ten Boom, the Dutch woman um, who survived the Holocaust in, in the Netherlands, um, she was imprisoned for hiding Jews. Um, so she was, she was persecuted and suffered not for her sin, but for the sins of others. And she famously said this, as she lost her sister Betsy, her sister Betsy in, I can't remember which camp she was in, but um, she suffered just horrific losses of her family and her own health. But she says this, Jesus, you'll never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. So though Corey wasn't suffering because of her own sin, she was suffering at the hands of other people's sin. She learned the exact same lesson here that the author of Lamentations learned, which is you'll never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And he's learning that in exile here. He's learning the Lord is my portion. If I have him, I'm good. I have everything I need. I miss being in the land. I miss the, the things that we had there. But you know what? The Lord is my portion. I have everything I need. And you need to remember that too when you sin. No matter what consequences you suffer from your sin, if you have the Lord, you have what you need. And then thirdly, remember the Lord is good to those who wait on him. Verses 25 and 26 it says, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. So most of us hate the idea of waiting for things, don't we? I mean, I do. I'm a fixer. If I've messed up, well, let me fix it, right? Let me, let me make it right. Let me patch things up. I just want to get that over with. 
But sometimes, you know, we're just not powerful enough to fix the consequences for our sin. We can't undo the, the wrong that we've done. We can't go backwards. We can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. It's all, it's, what's done is done. And so now we're relying upon God to bring about the restoration that only he can bring. And so our work is then waiting on him. It's difficult work, but it is the work that must be done. And throughout Scripture, we find a massive emphasis on this idea of waiting on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord. So many scriptures that talk about waiting on the Lord and the Lord renewing the strength of those who wait on him. So what's waiting on the Lord really about? What does that actually mean? Does it mean you're just sitting around or, you know, just watching the clock, waiting on the Lord? No, it, it actually means you come to the Lord with a posture of faith and humility. Faith and humility. Faith, first of all, saying, Lord, I believe you are everything that you say you are steadfast in love and mercy, uh, you know, abounding in steadfast love and mercy, that you're a faithful God, that you will be faithful to your covenant promises. I believe all of that to be true about you, that you not only can heal and restore me, but that you want to. It's saying, I have faith that that's who you are, and, and I'm looking for you to do that. But secondly, it involves taking a, a posture of humility that says, I can't fix the problems of my sin. You know, Israel was carried off into exile. There was no them fixing it. They weren't powerful like Babylon. Babylon was the superpower at the time. They weren't going to take them over and say, all right, now we're going to go get our land back. They couldn't do that. They were powerless. And so many times when we've messed up big time, we're powerless to make it right. And so waiting on the Lord means humility. I can't fix this. God, you're going to have to fix this. I can't do it. I have to wait on you. I have to look to you. And so we're needy. We're confessing, I'm needy, God, I'm broken. I can't do this on my own. Um, in fact, I can't even bring anything to this. You're going to have to do it. You're going to have to make things right. And the cool thing is, here's why God loves those who wait on him. He loves people that come to him with a posture of faith and humility. He never refuses that. He loves it when we come to him like that, like, God, I believe you're big. I believe you can do it, and I'm needy. I can't do anything myself. He responds to that heart every single time, and waiting quietly is what the people of Israel would have to do. The exile to Babylon lasted from 587 B.C. to about 539 B.C., a little over 40 years, but of course, true to his character, God did, in fact, bring them out of exile but more importantly, hundreds of years later, God brought them out of their greatest exile, their exile to sin and death. See, about 500 years after this poem was written in Lamentations, God came down in the form of a human and was the perfect example of his justice and mercy in one person, Jesus Christ. Which brings us to our final point, the biggest thing we must remember when we sin. We've got to remember what God did to satisfy his justice so that he could extend mercy to you and I. See, friends, in Jesus Christ, God said, I insist on justice. I will by no means pardon the guilty. We saw that in our scripture today, right? Like he is serious about his justice. It isn't simply what he prefers, but it's part of his perfection. It's who he is. So we must have justice. And so knowing that his perfect justice would be the absolute end of us, his perfect mercy said, I will take the justice upon myself. I'll take the justice upon 
myself. On the cross, Jesus Christ not only suffered but died. He took all of our bitterness that we deserved, all the exile, all the agony of our sin on himself in order that we would be left with only the mercy of God. And on that amazing Sunday, 2,000 years ago, the first Easter Sunday, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead to prove that God's mercies, in fact, are new every single morning. It was a morning unlike any other. And from that morning on, Christians have always been morning people. You understand? Even if you hate mornings and you're grouchy every morning, you are a morning person if you are a Christian because his mercies are new to you every single morning. Each morning is an opportunity to have the slate wiped clean and to live again as God's child. Each morning is a mini celebration, you understand, of the resurrection. That's what we do every Sunday morning, right? It's a mini Easter every single time. But each morning then is a reminder of that. Ah, Jesus is alive. His mercies are new every single morning. Our sin, our death, and Satan himself was defeated. God's justice was satisfied. And so now all we're left with is God's mercy. And so in light of that, friends, we have nothing left to do but rejoice. I mean, this is supposed to be a sermon about sin, but for Christians, the sermon always ends with singing, right? So I'm going to call the worship team up here and just remind you of this great hymn. We're going to sing it together, Great is Thy Faithfulness. It's right out of Lamentations. It isn't that like our God, that out of the saddest, darkest, weeping-filled book of the Bible comes rejoicing. Great is thy faithfulness. O God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Let's sing together.